Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. All right, so today's episode is titled, Can You Say What You Want? And keep your job. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on what you say in this podcast, but afterwards, I might, might try to fire you. Um, Everybody <laughs> immediately goes to, oh my God, there's so much stuff I want to say at my work every daggone day. Indeed. Those, yeah. That's right. That's right. So can you say what you want and keep your job? You know, we're going to talk about what the heck can anyone say anymore, how to be an effective social deviant. And then we're going to talk about how to curate a healthy conversation and culture at work, because this is a very important uh, type of um, topic right now, and I just think we need to address it. So that's what we're we're doing today. So let's start with this whole idea of uh, what the heck can anyone say anymore? Well, here's one thing you can't say. Uh, (laughs) I don't want to get fired from this podcast. (laughs) Oh, I can't believe you just said that. Um, So, you know, this does seem to be a problem and there's some evidence to suggest it is there's so I'm, uh, there, there was a study that just came out actually last week. So we're recording this on July 27th of 2020 and this came out uh, July 22nd of 2020 from the Cato Institute, which Hot has its off own the press, you know, and the Cato Institute has its own um, bias or I suppose it's it's leanings. It's a more libertarian leaning uh, think tank. Uh, but the, the study looked at a wide range of people of all political affiliations. And the overarching headline is 62 percent of Americans say they have a political views that they're afraid to share. And they found that 50% of strong liberals support firing Trump donors. 36% of strong conservatives support firing Biden donors. 32% are worried about missing out on job opportunities because of their political opinions. And, you know, this is this idea of self-censorship, that people are worried about sharing how they feel about things, how they think about things. And... That that seems to be kind of problematic in some ways, don't you think? Well, yeah, I guess. I mean, if you care about politics, yeah, <laughs> or or anything for that matter, I, I know it's this just goes like, way beyond politics. Yeah, I know it's it, you know this is it's challenging, and you know we look at these ideas between the like the liberal bias in academia, um, media bias, and then a lot of times people throw out that. Well, you're just, if you don't like it, it's bad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think that that, this is at least a recent set of data that suggests that, yeah, people do feel worried about um, how they're going to be judged uh, by what they say. And some of that is, is good. Like, we don't want people to just kind of always just say exactly what's on their mind. That can be problematic, too, because it oftentimes comes out in a way that's not helpful. Um, but it does speak to this overall idea of can we say what we want and and so forth. So this brings us also to this idea of the Overton window, uh, which is a common idea, at least within the idea of political speech. Uh, but I, I'm I'm probably relatively sure that many of our listeners haven't heard of this idea of the Overton window. What's the Overton window, Chris? Yeah, so that's everybody kind of knows that there's this realm of acceptable things you can say. Mm-hmm. Like, like I'm probably, I probably wouldn't like it if my wife was like, my husband's a total fatty, right? <laughs> at a, at a dinner party. And it, <laughs> and it's, you know, I just be like, well, hurt feelings, <laughs> but, right? There's this Overton window and there's certain things you couldn't talk about like during the McCarthy era era. You can say, well, yeah, I don't know. I kind I kind of think I would like to be a communist. You mm-hmm. know, that would, that would have been outside the realm of the Overton window. Um, I also think in the age of social media, people have used this Overton window concept to gain notoriety for their posts or persona that they're pushing online. 
Mm-hmm. So if you say something so outlandish, all of a sudden, boom, that everybody's triggered kind of because it's outside the Overton window and then everybody's talking about it. You know, like I think we mentioned it in another episode, Ozzy Osbourne biting the bat or dove or pigeon. I don't know what it was, <laughs> but everybody's like, you can't eat live animals on stage. That's outside. <laughs> That's outside the Overton window of concert going. And, and so... I don't know. Right. Overton. So, I mean, this idea of the Overton window, it, it, uh, it's not an actual window. It's a, it's a metaphor, right? It is named after um, someone named Joseph Overton. And Joseph Overton was a senior vice president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. And he, he was originally kind of um, thought of as the person who conceived this idea of the range of policies that are acceptable in the mainstream. And so one way to think about this is kind of on a spectrum of things that you have less freedom to talk about to those that are more, you have more freedom to talk about on the less freedom, you know, those unthinkable things, right? So, um, you know, all the way to those things that are more radical, acceptable, sensible, popular policy, and then also going kind of to, um, you know, the other spectrum as well. So it's this idea of what is acceptable, what can you say and, and how you, can you talk about things? Um, and it seems, at least some would argue, I'll put it this way, some would argue that the Overton window has shifted or perhaps constrained itself somewhat so that you can't say things, you know, because people are going to be offended. Um, that pe- And those people would argue that, hey, you know, everyone's just being too sensitive and so forth. And I think it's a little bit more complex than that. There's a lot going on there. Um, but there is this idea of what is and what is not acceptable to talk about. And this happens in our workplaces. It happens in our conversations with people we care about. Uh, and it happens certainly in the public forum on various issues of importance. Yeah. So like we were talking this morning about, you know, kind of some of the stuff, what is offensive and how mm-hmm. it's a moving target. One, you know, if you grow up on literature and this is the thing, the, the people that are, you know, woke about this stuff that really kind of get it talk about all the bad ideas that are baked into a lot of our literature like sexism and stuff Mm -hmm. but if you grew up in a well-rounded education of the classics and all this other stuff well you just ate ate, you ate that sexism for breakfast lunch and dinner for anything out of the 18th century (laughs) (laughs) right and so like this morning we were talking about oh well that's kind of a sacred cow and they were like wait a minute what i we don't actually know if Can you say cows... sacred cow anymore, right? Right. And, and like, you know, we don't want to be offensive. So, like, and I said, oh, actually, we should bring that up to just say, as this Overton window's moving, mm-hmm. what is acceptable in the realm of speech changes. And, and that's a positive thing in so many ways because we're giving, you know, more rights to more people, Right. Um, Mm -hmm. LGBT people cannot be called disparaging names in the workplace. That's just like outside the Overton window for a lot of organizations probably needs to be in a lot more, but you know, these are those things. It's a moving target. And, but if you're just trying to talk about something like our, we didn't even have a thought about Hinduism. We're just like the idea of a sacred cow, which is in the dictionary. um, Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure, you know, so if you're just trying to talk and, and it's so hard for it's not that we're being silent. We just don't know how to speak yet. Right. Because the windows moved. And so are people just being too sensitive is probably just the desperate cry of a lazy mind trying to just get a point across. It's hard. <laughs> well, right? people, people don't like change. Right. And we're seeing this right now with um, many aspects of our of things that are in the public domain. For example, the changing of sports teams names. Right. Yeah. What used to be acceptable for the the football team in Washington, uh, you know, certainly is not acceptable or at least is not thought acceptable by the vast majority of people, including myself. Um, and so they're changing their name or at least they're what's kind of funny is they're going to postpone it. They're going to really apparently take time. They're just going to call themselves the Washington football team this year, which is kind of funny. You know what? But, I would have loved to have been on that consulting engagement. <laughs> but it's like, give me a million dollars and I'll be like, you're going to call yourself. The Washington. <laughs> the Washington football team. It's so right. creative. It's off the chart yes. here. <laughs> well, I'll go on the record as saying that I'm in support of uh, retired Admiral Jim Stavridis's, um idea of calling them the fighting admirals. So I think that's a good one. But anyway, you're seeing this across the spectrum, right? And we're seeing this in terms of um, 
you know, how we talk about other hot button issues, how we uh, even approach various historical things like monuments and so forth. And we're not going to go down that path too much today, but it's this idea that it seems like there's a lot of walking on eggshells that people are feeling at least um, about how do we talk and, about And there's a zone of eggshellness, uh, copyright. No, <laughs> TM. The, the zone of eggshellness is like on one sense, it's positive. People are trying to be more careful uh, with their language and support people and not be offensive. Um, walking on eggshells, I mean, we've had cases where people have been fired from their organization for stuff they said on Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, I was on a pace, Facebook forum. They were talking about, you know, some kids were like spray painting and keying cars, which is a which is a bad. Not name. good. Don't L- do it. Low form. But some of these parents who actually have kids were saying, like, maybe they need to be shot. And oh, I God. was like, oh, what? Now, OK, I get it. You're mad. Yeah. Maybe right. you're like, I really want to show those teenagers. But the, the, I. No Saying car. they should be shot is appropriately outside of the Overton window on that. Well, apparently not. And the uh, <laughs> forum of this small town in Utah that shall remain nameless, not my direct town park city. But I mean, this is just a case of where somebody has an emotional outburst and they say something way outside the Overton window. But I don't know if, if somebody had really pull up their rifle and shoot a child. They'd probably come yell at him, hey, get away from my car, right? You know, but there's, so we have have these things. So you can't say everything you want on social media anymore. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing. And I, you know, there've been discussions and I maybe I can't remember the exact study, but I even think that there's been studies that people behave more anonymously on the web than they would in person. They say stuff online to even a dear friend. Mm-hmm that they wouldn't say in person. Yes, that's true. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, I um, when I've talked with colleagues and it's, it's interesting. So there's this weird phenomenon. I don't have, you know, lots of data on this aside from anecdotal uh, evidence, but suffice it to say that sometimes people will write, students will write nasty things to uh, professors in emails. And it seems, at least from my anecdotal experience, that this happens a little bit more to female professors than to male professors. Uh, Whoa, know, so, what? Yeah. What? So my my wife's a professor, and she's gotten some emails from people that are just in this tone that is just nasty, right? Or, or it's just, you know, kind of not, I would say, not something you would say face-to-face. And what Does I she say, c- come to my office and say that to my face? Well, Does that's she what email I, that back? Uh, so <laughs> she, she, she deals with it appropriately, I'll say. But that, that actually is what I have recommended. You know, say, yeah. say, look, come to my office and talk about it. And then when they're in the office, you know, say, hey, here, here's what you said. Um, can you read this to me? And let's talk about this, right? Oh, my gosh. Uh, so, you know, that is just so flippin' despicable. Well, it is. Uh, I, absolutely. And, and there's, you know... I'm sure there are some studies on this. I just don't have them top of mind, you know, in terms of how students, um, what they'll write in their evaluations uh, of, of courses. And, you know, that differs depending upon the, the gender and other characteristics of the professor, which, you know, so, um, you know, the, the which is weird because I think there's more women <laughs> in education K through 12. Yeah, and I don't know about K-12. And you think you're like, you'd you'd learn to not be a numbskull to women educators by the time you got to college. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, so (laughs) not not to derail things, but, you you know, so this this whole idea of what can you say anymore? Can you be fired for what you say outside of the workplace? And some people are like, I have freedom of speech. Well, you do, but you know what? Unless you're, if your employer is a private employer, they don't have to protect your freedom of speech, right? Right. They, yes, you can be fired um, for things you do on Facebook, for things you do on other social media platforms, for things you say. And you know, I think this becomes even more important to keep in mind as an employee um, as you become more senior. Because like you can you, wear uh, shorts and flip-flops at your house. But if you're a delivery person for a company... And it's a hot day and you decide, you know what, I'm just going to put on my shorts and flip flops and go deliver packages. And people are taking pictures of you, (laughs) you know, and you're mow the lawn clothes, (laughs) you know, like what's going on? They're like, hey, that's 
that's not the image we because at that point you're an agent for the organization right right and yeah. and even if like so exa- for example like we're both uh like you're a reservist i'm in the national guard same kind of thing right we though technically we can't be legally penalized for our behavior when we're not under orders if right. i do something very publicly that brings disparagement to now of course alabama guard actually has a code now that affects your behavior outside of of work and i think some states are i don't know if that's every state but anyway when you come up for promotion even though they can't like fire you necessarily for what you did it would be like "Mm, uh uh, not gonna get promoted right (laughs) right right so i mean i think keep in mind as an employee that you are representative of the organization and you know, does that influence what you can and cannot say? Well, yeah, it probably does. And if, if, if it's doing so in a way that really is contrary to your values, then it's probably time to start looking for another place of employment. Um, but it also brings up this whole idea of organizational silence. So, you know, you've got this Overton window kind of in the public discourse, but there's also an Overton window about what you can and cannot say within certain organizations. Uh, and I'm not just talking about, you know, oh, well, we don't talk about sex, politics and religion here. It's it's a bigger idea than that. Which and are the I, funnest topics to talk about. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those things that are kind of uh, outside of, of what the organization you know wants you to be saying. So there's, right. this, there's a uh, an article that came out a couple decades ago now, um, but was kind of introducing this idea of organizational silence into the management literature. And it was written by Elizabeth Morrison and Francis Milliken of, uh, of New York University at the time. And um, I just want to read the the first paragraph here because I think it is... It, it's this is very, so good. Yeah, this it is so, so clearly good. explains what's going on in many organizations. And I think as I read this, you know, perhaps our, some of our listeners will be uh, nodding their head in, in agreement or laughing, right? So here we go. And I quote, Imagine an organization where the CEO has no clothes. The CEO's lack of clothes is apparent to all who set eyes upon him or her. Yet employees never mention this. Some employees even compliment and praise the CEO's attire. The CEO takes pride and comfort in the fact that subordinates recognize his or her fine taste in clothing and easily dismisses those few troublemakers who look at him or her strangely or who dare to suggest that the CEO's taste in clothing is anything less than impeccable. Yet, behold, these employees are not blind. Behind the safety of closed doors, And in veiled whispers, they talk of their leader's lack of clothing. They all clearly know that the CEO is naked, but only the foolish or naive dare to speak of it in public. Is this a mere fairy tale? We believe that it is not, and that far too many organizations are caught in an apparent paradox in which most employees know the truth about certain issues and problems within the organization, yet dare not speak that truth to their superiors. And the article goes on to kind of build this idea and talk about the research support for this idea. Uh, and I, I just love it, right? So we'll post a link to that, um, that, that quote and that article in the show notes. Yeah, so guests, anybody that's listened to any of our episodes with guests know that it's kind of no holds barred, you know, like <laughs> we, we – you know, not everybody can hang with that. And that and that's OK. Like, you know, if we're talking on a certain topic, we want to be able to do the breadth. But some of our guests, you know, their organizations won't allow them to talk about some of their internal deliberations on certain topics. Sure. And, you know, and that's OK, because some of that's how the sausage is made. If you're competitive and, you know, that kind of thing, it's totally fine. So it's, there's not this idea that you can just say everything especially as you begin to get more senior within or- organizations you kind of become the face and identity of that org publicly right yeah and and this whole idea of organizational silence you know you think about your organization uh that you're a member of and there are probably you know let's say a decision gets made um how free are you to really criticize that decision what would happen if you did uh, you know, are is it the case where everyone's just kind of like, yeah, sounds like a great idea, boss, and just kind of going along with it while privately or maybe with each other, 
they recognize and discuss how this is the worst idea ever. I, I see this all the time. You'll you'll you go to a meeting. I, I've I've seen this a number of times in my career. You go to a meeting, some decision gets made. You know the 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 leader thinks it's a great idea. Everyone kind of says in the meeting, "Oh, okay." You know they don't they don't they maybe kind of give their tacit support for it. They maybe don't um, directly challenge it. And then after the meeting, we're all talking to each other. And we're like, "Do you think that's a good idea?" No. Right. But everyone yeah. in the meeting self-censored so that they didn't say anything about it. that's this idea of organizational silence. And um, that's not a healthy thing for organizations. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that later in the episode. But um, it's just, it's kind of this idea of an Overton window within an organizational context. Yeah. So, you know, that's where values we always values are your guide. Right. You got to choose. So if you're in an org. You got to choose the hills you die on, right? So Mm -hmm. if you know, like I know sometimes if it's in a training, we're not actually deploying. We're like early in what they call the averaging cycle. We're like refit. And you've got some numbskull leader. Like there's maybe not a whole lot of impetus for him to try to push the organization forward into a massive. He's probably not going to be judged in some massive improvement piece. So maybe you just go with like a 50% acceleration versus a hundred percent acceleration towards the best org ever. That that's okay. But if there's something about critical values, you know, maybe you do want to get out or stand up for stuff. Right. So, you know, when you hear things that are outside of the Overton window, so to speak, within your organization, and you're like, eh, should I should I, you know, talk about this? Should I raise the point? Uh, sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. That's this idea of I, that I think is is an effective way to think about it. Is you got to know kind of what's at stake, right? Um, and if it's something that is truly important to you or really is going to derail the organization, then you know my bias would be to go ahead and say something. Uh, and but that's where you got to got to know the hill that you're willing to but, die on. But we're in a pandemic unemployment's going through the roof. Sometimes you just got to pay the bills. Like, I mean, you definitely wouldn't. Yeah. You would hope that you would say something in an environment that was as toxic as, you know, World War II Germany with Hitler coming to power. (laughs) right? Right. But what we've learned is a lot of silence can be bought through some of these norms and and pressures. Right. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things is there's this panic and I've seen like the Harper's letter, which was an issue, and everybody feels What's the Harper's that, Letter? Explain that for our listeners. So there was a group of academics, public intellectuals, those kind of people that signed a letter talking about, well, bemoaning the the cancel culture, which gets thrown out, and and speech that's getting silent, mm-hmm. uh, silenced. And sometimes you got to ask, it's like, man, I don't know. You're a public person worth millions of dollars. You say you've been silenced, and he- here you are in another national... <laughs> publication mm-hmm. complaining about being silenced. I, I, buddy, you're not actually silenced. Right. But then we go all the way over to this other stuff and somebody's been fired uh, from their job because they have a differing political view than the others. Now, sometimes when you go under the hood, and you, the guy or uh, lady or whoever, right, uh, bemoans their firing because of free speech. But you look and you're like, dude, you're like posting on a KKK forum on the web. Like, that's so far outside the over. First, it's morally reprehensible. Mm -hmm. I don't care where the Overton window is. But second, like, there's no way you can defend that. So I don't know. There's no data that I've seen. If a listener out there knows of something, please bring it up, where we know that these cases of firings and stuff are big enough to be really concerned as a society. That being said, with each individual moment, or situation, you know, somebody's fired for uh, tweeting a person of color's research about the riots uh, mm-hmm. because it doesn't maybe line up with some certain held orthodoxy. Uh, well, that was sad. I forget that guy's name. But, um, you know, we should take these individual things as we monitor the cultural environment. But we also need to realize that some of this stuff is just so far out of scope. Right, right. And so I think this brings us to this idea of how you as a leader can be an effective social deviant. So we've introduced this idea a few times, I believe, in previous podcasts, this idea of, you know, as a leader, when you are uh, trying to do something different, you are, by definition, going against the grain of the current organization, the current group. 
you oftentimes are doing something or need to do something that is, to some people, rather unpopular. And so you have to break from the kind of what is accepted. And I think there, <laughs> there are ways to be effective at this in ways that are not. It's like when I first came off across the literature on social deviancy, like, I mean, some of it's criminal. I'm not a criminal or a vandal or something, but I was like, yeah. oh, how come this wasn't one of the personality types on the Myers-Briggs? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I found my people <laughs> because the myers-briggs is crap yeah <laughs> that's another another topic for another day yeah um, but sorry it's if you bought myers-briggs for your org i'm yeah. sorry for that <laughs> no it's interesting so but there is a uh a validated personality scale i believe i i don't want to mention that I, i'm pretty sure i know which uh which organization puts this out but i'm not sure certain so i won't say but um that that actually measures a scale called mischievousness, right? So yeah. idea, you know, um, but uh, just yeah. ask my mom how I rate on that scale. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea here with social deviance, at least as we're talking about it in an organizational context as a leadership trait or a leadership behavior, I should say, uh, this is, you know, this comes back to this whole idea that diversity of opinion counts, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it sometimes feels like it's a little bit outside of that Overton window. Yes. If the emperor has no clothes, well, gosh, darn it. Somebody needs to say something, right. but there's all these orgs where it's just, it's silenced. Right. You know, I, right. I worked at this one organization and the CEO was like, just not aware of business fundamentals. And yet uh -oh. you needed to move the dial. And it was just like, so we go out on this retreat, you know, I'm new to the org and I'm like, well, what are we going to do to make this place better? You know, it's me in the C-suite there. And it, oh, it's gosh. like, and I'm like, great, I've got this whole list of projects. And then everybody's looking at me like I called their baby ugly. <laughs> you know, you did. <laughs> and, but, but the other execs, I had had conversations offline about those items and they totally agreed. But when it came time to broach those in a, and it was horrible. Nobody like had the appetite once they were in that spineless. social, right? And it's because they're spineless. Were, well, and it and it's because of the, the there's so much pressure in a group setting, whether we recognize it or not, to conform. You know, you go back to the the famous ash experiments where they, you know, I guess my sensitivity to that conforming is broke. Like I've I've got like a form of like not aware of needing to do that. Yeah. So so you you are you are not a pro you are not a prototypical human. Let's just say, I, let's just I know. put that out I've there, seen, right? I've seen when we've been in front of clients <laughs> and Ben's, and somebody says something that's so off the chart and bad for the business, Ben, you can just see the sweat going down Ben's forehead because he knows I'm going to be like, well, I think this is terrible, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll be really nice about it. but <laughs> Right, right. So, but diversity of opinion does count and it is helpful for creativity. It's helpful for problem solving in an organization. When you're going through turbulence and you're going through, you know, what we would call a, a VUCA environment, uh, where there's a lot tell of them VUCA, tell yeah, them what VUCA is all about volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. You know, when you're in that type of realm, you have to be firing on all cylinders and you have to be able to have productive ways for people to speak up, for people to not be claiming that the emperor looks great, even though the emperor has no clothes. And you, you have to do that in a careful way. And so we've, we've tried to, you know, based upon what we know about human behavior and our own experiences, try to come up with a few different ways that people can do this in a more effective way. How can you be a social deviant, go against the popular opinion in a way that's helpful and not harmful? Right. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you brought firing on all cylinders up. So when we look at the economy and aggregate, unemployment's a problem. Why? Because that's value that everybody could gain benefit from that can't be used. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was the whole idea of shovel-ready projects. Well, if people are going to be sitting down, at least we can get our roads fixed, right? Right. So when we look at diversity and inclusion, if we if if we're not including different like minorities, um, genders, all of that different stuff. We're not capturing all the value could, we could be have, but then stepping even outside of that, if you're not taking a broad array of the opinions that are out there, how do you know, or who, what was it? There was like, if everybody's saying the thing, ain't nobody thinking that, 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 I think that was a general or something that said that. But if you have, if, if everybody's saying the exact same thing and can't analyze the, 
broader breadth of opinion out there, that means you're you could be walking off a cliff just because you're not you don't have your eyes open really. Right. So I think a first piece of being an effective social deviant is that you you can't just come in and start doing it right away um, because you don't have I, any... I, I've done that. I've come in too early. It's shocking, <laughs> shocking for me to hear I know. that. No way. Please. <laughs> right. Like they, so, they don't know that I'm a good, honest person yet. Yeah. So <laughs> it's helpful if you're going to be this wrecking ball a little bit in an organization or in a team. It's helpful if people realize and know in in their hearts that you are coming at it in good faith and that you are uh, that you've built your credibility to a level where you can have that kind of conversation. Uh, so it may take a little bit of time um, for you to get in with the group and to um, you know establish yourself as a professional who can be trusted before you start start you know advocating for widespread you know disestablishment and change right so <laughs> yeah i uh, i came across a really <laughs> i had the chance to kind of work a few times with a fantastic leader in the navy and and what he what he would sometimes say is you know you've got to you got to kind of throw pebbles before you start chucking cannonballs you know yeah, so, i got to so, find some of those pebbles yeah so, so <laughs> that that's a incremental change can be a good thing so build your credibility have conversations in good faith uh, and and what that means is do it for the interest of the group. This is this should not be self-promotional in nature. And sometimes it can come across as that or come across as just arrogance. And that's not helpful because that shuts people down. Yeah, there's there's so many things that that people do in this space. You see it on social media. Somebody, mm-hmm. you know, non sequiturs. Well, you're just a dumb liberal or you're just a dumb conservative. Like, okay. Can you tell me which views of mine are most stupid? <laughs> you know, right. at that point, if they can't point to something, then it was like, wait a minute. That's what we call an ad hominem attack, right? Mm-hmm. Attack my ideas, not my person. Right. Um, which is, this is the whole thing. is like, you got to know your audience and consider the risks involved. You know, it's like, so if my daughter like said, you know, because I'm in the military, she thinks about war sometimes. Dad, war is bad. I don't sit down and have a treatise with her on the Hague Convention and just war theory. That's like, that's not where a nine-year-old's head's at at that moment. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that'll come soon, though, right? Yes, I've already, yes, Yes. we've got the plans. (laughs) Very very good. But you've got to, so, you know, this goes back to this idea of knowing the hills that you want to die on, uh, knowing what your values are. Is this something that you really are going to be willing to risk your, uh, kind of your personal and social capital within that group to start to to bring up and talk about, um, because th- that that is there is a very real risk there. Uh, people don't get necessarily rewarded for telling the emperor that he has no clothes, right? Yeah. Th- these people oftentimes can be, uh, you know, you maybe the 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 focus of ridicule and ostracism at least for a time. If you yeah, oh, people don't like way. to hear 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 the truth. Like if right. you know if you know your friend, then you know dear friends across the street. If they're having an affair, well, do you go tell everybody? Hmm. I mean, like they, I I don't know if there's a good social rule on. Hey, listen, I, your husband's sleeping around, uh, uh, but maybe I mean these things are challenging, and you know what? No matter what you said or didn't say. Those things can blow up in your face, right? right? And so when we see, when we're online and we see this bad behavior, right? And it's this bad conversational behavior. And we hate it. We hate it online. Don't bring it offline, for God's sake, into your organization. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, I think this comes back to this idea, too, of, of having authentic care for the collective versus just trying to come off as self-promotional. Uh, frame your arguments. If you're going to be a social deviant and you see something that needs to change that goes against popular opinion, frame that argument in terms of something that is going to be helpful for the overall team and why it's going to help the group and isn't just something that you think is, you know, everyone's all, everyone's stupid except for you. Um, that's not going to help. Uh, and, you know, the other big piece here, of course, is that these, these types of conversations, these types of topics can get rather emotional. Yeah. Like yeah, emotions. If, so here's the thing: everybody criticizes emotion, and it's just you know that whole like Pink Floyd 
mode of thinking of working. You know, how close to a brick in the wall can you be? <laughs> mm. How much like a cog, you know, oh, look, I come in, I don't emote. I don't even talk about my family or have pictures of them on my desk. Look at how productive I am. I only took two potty breaks today. I am the ideal worker. That's that's <laughs> baloney, right? But that being said, if you're having outbursts of tears every second or third hour, that's probably not the far end you want to be on. But we have these emotions. It's okay to bring them to work. That has to be part of like how we feel in an organization actually affects our productivity and how well we do because we're, we're not cogs. Right. So two related previous podcast episodes that I would recommend our listeners check out on these types of topics is one, our conversation about difficult conversations. Right. And number two, we had an episode about emotions and this idea of the chimp paradox. And the, the title of that episode was check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> so be, be sure to check that out because it, it, I think yeah, it before has to, make ideas. sure to check yourself. <laughs> yeah. Check yourself. Um, all right. So, you know, another good thing to remember here in terms of this idea of social deviancy um, and why it's important is that to be a good organization and by good, I mean, effective and competitive and innovative, um, you have to continually learn as an organization, as a group. And this doesn't happen if everyone there is just a clone of the CEO or just a, a yes person who says, yes, boss, we should do that. And you, you, you know, all that. You're kind the of, greatest uh, boss ever. Yeah. I mean, this is why there's probably not a whole lot of innovation and creativity in the, in North Korea. Right. So you have, I, I mean, you have, um, because I mean, so... there, there's always a counterculture whenever right, you right. have that repression, there's yeah. a counterculture of creativity that happens because humans cannot be held well, down. Well, well, sure. But I'm just saying that within the government there, um, you know, you but have, if you're you directly publicly... around Kim Jong-un, yeah, your, your scope of creativity is probably way less than it is, you know, right. out in the, you know, country, right? Because you have to be expressing the appropriate emotion and clapping exuberantly at anything the person says. That, that's probably not the best way to encourage helpful dissent within your group and your, your senior leadership team. But, but so here, here's the thing. So when we come into an organization and we're just doing an assessment, we do an assessment, we provide that evidence-based stuff. And so we're able to go through these very, very careful curated procedures of building rapport, developing a case on the evidence and all that stuff. But if an organization is two months from going bankrupt mm. and we're going in there or a year from going, we haven't done the, two, we haven't done the two months. Whew, I don't know. <laughs> That'd be a hard one. But right. If you're like, we're a year until we go bankrupt with no, end in sight you know we've done some of that you know you some of the formalities around being a deviant change right so guys we're about to go bankrupt if we don't talk about these five big things that are going to derail and sink you mm -hmm. you know like you just have to come in strong at that point right so there's a bit of this this issue based on risk and other factors that are happening external to the org that you know pressures there but at some point you gotta do something right so so you're you're a social deviant you're having all you know let's say you curating an organization that allows a breadth of ideas you're like oh okay you've got the social deviant idea let's hear it maybe you can put it on a board that says top five social deviant ideas that have helped our <laughs> company right you're you're helping it out right at some point the dialogue has to stop and I see this in some of these super creative organizations, software organizations where they got more money than sense sometimes because they're just, you know, software prints cash. You know what? You, you just have to sell it over and over. Too much of that dialogue can hurt the productivity, mm -hmm. right? So you, you actually got to get a direction down and start working. Right. And sometimes, you know, the, uh, the perfect can be the enemy of the good or the done, and so at some point you do have to just move forward and, you know, there's a balance here. If you are always trying to argue about what the organization can do or should do, then that can just become another form of paralysis, which is not helpful. Uh, so, right. Definitely... And people, people use these ideas of, I have freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. 
And we all know the typical trope. Well, you have freedom of speech, but you can't scream fire in a theater. Right. But lots of times people use these ideas of freedom of speech to hide bad conversational behavior. They're not coming from a place of intellectual honesty. Mm-hmm. Um, they're using ad hominem attack. Um, let me let me describe this idea. And my buddy Jordan introduced this to me a lot many many years ago. This idea of steel manning versus straw manning. Yeah. So so a straw man argument would be something. So Ben, you say you hate tomatoes. And then I go, can you believe Ben says he hates all red fruit? This is horrible. I won't stand for this red fruit hatred. And <laughs> it's it's an argument. <laughs> it's an argument that looks similar to what you said, but right. isn't exactly what you said. And then you can take that straw man, beat the fire out of it. And then your, your perception in the public forum is one of a moron or whatever. I completely tarred and feather you in a bad way. And, and and that's not good. But what the better behavior is this idea of steel manning. Mm-hmm. That's where I say your argument so good that you wish you're like, man, I wish I could have said it that good myself. That's exactly what I think. Well, you can kick the fire out of those, <laughs> those steel men, right? But make sure that you're having those kinds of things. So when somebody's like, wait, I've got freedom of speech. You're like, okay, man, you're right. You got freedom of speech. But help me understand how what you're saying it has value here or, mm-hmm. you know, good manners. You know, like if my wife went to every public party and be like, gosh, my husband's such a fatty. Well, that, I mean, that's just not good manners. I'm, I'm picking on myself here because, you know, I, I'll get in trouble because the Overton window has moved. And I, I think I'm OK to self-deprecate here for the sake of the common good. But, um, you know, there's some of those things. It's like, you know, you do have freedom of speech and maybe that is even correct. But that's just bad manners, and it's not something that actually needs to be addressed to help this organization, to help our society, to help our local communities, to help our relationships with our neighbors do better and flourish, right? Right, right. And so, you know, I think having tact, having good taste, having people's best intentions in mind, or at least saying, how is what I'm saying actually helping? Am I just trying to feel right, or am I I actually trying to be, uh, you know, be a good person in this situation? Am I actually trying to help the overall conversation or not? Yeah. And, th- th- there's this idea of virtue signaling. Yeah. Right. So let's say you, me and, and my wife or somebody else are having a conversation and you say something that's outside our norm mm-hmm. and I just fly off the handle and start attacking you. Does that help you come to my side or point of view? No, no. Yeah, but <laughs> but I got not. total brownie points with my in-group. My mm-hmm. in-group thinks I'm awesome. But right. do I really need to win over my in-group? No, yeah. I'm preaching to the choir. So at that point, it's more about emoting, maybe some carth- catharsis, and getting brownie points with your in-group. It's mm-hmm. actually not about helping somebody understand at least where you're coming from, having a quality conversation. You may have to agree to disagree. You know, every I changed my views on a lot of things um, from the time I grew up and stuff. But, you know, that would be an example of a conversation that's just in poor taste. But we can see it with the Twitter mobs that, mm-hmm. you know, and of course, everybody's jokes. So those Twitter weenies, you know, they're they're not like real life people. <laughs> they they probably don't have good jobs or something. But um, so, but some of them do, right? I mean, that's I, I don't know. I I, I don't I don't know. I just had this view of my mind that here's totally biased. Like Twitter mob, it's like, man, you have so much time to pile on people on the web. What what do you do to pay yeah. rent? <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, I I think there are. It, they have a famous Twitter yeah. mob leader. Yeah, yeah. So I can't people, think of one. This happens in the. I mean, I think it does happen in the public forum, and it happens where people are, um, you know, not necessarily just sitting in their mom's basement uh, at the age of you know, forty five, and just you know want to pick on people. I think it's. Uh, I think it's. It, it can be more than that. People get riled up, and they like. There's a lot of tribalism that can 
get in there. Um, there's virtue signaling across e- an even broader audience. Like, I guess I'm I'd have to have a tribe. I'd have to know what it was like to have a tribe. <laughs> yeah, you, you have you have no tribe. <laughs> you you have you have. Uh, I guess I'm maybe I'm in your tribe. I don't know. Um, okay, great. So let's move from that to talk a little bit about how do you curate a healthy conversation and culture at work um, based upon these ideas of freedom of speech. Uh, these ideas of the Overton window, uh, making sure that people aren't um, just claiming that the CEO looks great, even though he or she, you know, metaphorically has no clothes. How do you do this? And, how do, you know, I guess the first thing to, to think about is if you are a leader in an organization, if you have formal authority, I'm kind of, you know, mixing uh, the idea of, of leader with having a formal position or title, which um you know, yeah, you can be case. a lay leader. Right, we, we've course. all seen that one employee. He's just a line yeah. level worker. But when he says something, everybody freaking mm-hmm. listens. For sure, for yeah, sure. Yeah. But if you but you have if you have a lot of formal authority in the organization, you <laughs> should care deeply about these ideas. You should care deeply about whether or not people feel like they are free to dissent from the norm. Right. In terms of what ideas are good for the organization, in terms of what the best processes are in the organization, how we should conduct ourselves at work, and all of these other types of ideas. Because if people don't feel like they can dissent, then you're really not going to be firing on all cylinders. You're only going to be doing what the the leader or the, the formal manager or whomever thinks is, is appropriate. Um, and this brings up this idea of psychological safety, man, that, that is such really a in your team. powerful concept. So Ben, just describe psychological con- sure. safety. Yeah. So psychological safety is this idea that <clears throat> you can take interpersonal risks within a group, you know, so if you have a high degree of psychological safety in a team, then the team members feel like they can voice opinions, even, even though they're unpopular, they can challenge the status quo. And this, I, this is very helpful in a lot of situations, but you know, let's take an extreme example, you know, um, think about a surgical team, right. Or other healthcare examples. You really want people to be able to say, Hey, we, we, we didn't do this correctly. We, you know, we got to fix that. And it has to happen even, um, without kind of these status and, and hierarchical differences that can occur, especially in healthcare where you have, you know, this idea that the doctor knows all like yeah, I, I, on know, a team of flight, a flight team, you yeah. know, somebody has to be able to raise their hand and say, everybody's about to die here. If this doesn't change. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, it was interesting. I was talking about this idea of psychological safety uh, in one of my MBA courses that I, I teach. And uh, I had an anesthesiologist in the class and he, he just, it was funny. He just raised his hand. And he's like, Hey, just a quick comment. Like if you don't do this, people die. I was like, my work here is done. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, I mean, we, we deal in a military yeah. context. Also, with some of our manufacturing clients, there's sure. like real OSHA safety issues. People, you know, you know, in some manufacturing environments, they're like, well, we lose like three fingers a year. Mm. You know, like, it, like people actually lose a digit while manufacturing, you know. And, and so these psychological safety, yes, life limb. Absolutely. But it's also about curating that it's okay to bring up these ideas, right? So let's talk about how you can curate that. So the first thing I think that's important. So we've got a lot of contentious social issues right now. Right. And let's be honest. Um, You know, I studied theology in undergrad. Um, You know, I used to be a music minister and everything. So one of the things that my teacher said is, Hey, everybody has jobs and they work really hard and then they come home and they got to try to get a few hours with their kids. Then maybe they watch a little bit of trash TV and go to bed. They don't have time to do the depths of research into the Bible that you as a professional theologian are going to invest, right? So as an organization, your people in that org Right. And he calls it the deal. So you better be worth the money that they're you're paying you because they're paying you to help educate them on that stuff. So as an organization, these contentious social issues, just get ahead of the game. You can mm-hmm. shape the conversation by going and getting leading experts to help define what is the real topic around LGBT issues. 
What are the real parts of the conversation around race and gender equity and these kinds of things? If you're putting out that expert opinion with real, you know, that gives people language to use that they may not have understood before, you can shape all that and bake it into your culture. This needs to be part of your learning and development strategy. So when, you know, when people aren't just talking based on what they know, they're guided by at least having heard from an expert, the quality of that conversation is going to be higher. Mm-hmm. For sure. So, you know, I think this is a little bit of, uh, you know, look and listen before you leap into some of these issues. Uh, and that can help you at least come from a more informed approach. And like you mentioned, not everyone else is going to have that same approach. So having a more uh, teaching type of mentality, having a more educational type of mentality when you're going, when you're trying to bring people onto your side, so to speak, uh, can be really effective. Uh, and I think it's also important as a leader just to remember that, hey, you know, you've got to balance these things. Having some good, vigorous debate about what the organization should do strategically or tactically, uh, that's really good. At some point, you have to say, okay, here's what we're going to do and why. Let's do it. Right. And having that faithful implementation and execution uh, following the vigorous debate is important. Sometimes you'll see organizations that go kind of too far in the other direction where all they're doing is the vigorous debate and they continue to do that for a very long time. Um, when, <laughs> what do you when, do for work? Uh, you know, I, I get a coffee and then I go yell at Bob. Bob <laughs> yells at me. Then it's lunchtime. Maybe we write yeah. code for an hour or two. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I, I, I see this frequently. And, you know, it's this this idea that you need to say, OK, here's what we're going to do. Let's execute it. And even if you're not fully on board with that, you know, at least hopefully through that process of vigorous debate, you have um, you can understand the thought process. You can explain it. And you can get behind it and start moving forward. If you can't get behind it, and if it's one of these hills that you are willing to die on as an executive, and I'm speaking particularly if you're kind of at that level, then it's time to resign. And, you know, because that that's being a person of integrity. Um, but uh, you got this. I think it's a good way to, to think about this balance. Vigorous debate followed by faithful implementation. Now, we do this. The military even has journals that officers and enlisted people can submit articles to mm -hmm. and say, I think what we're doing in the military right now is garbage on this front. Yep. And, uh, yeah, everybody like thinks this idea, not everybody, but I get this a lot. Oh, well, you just guys are brainless automatons that are just going to follow any old order. Couldn't and be it's like, you know what? Yeah. Some people are like, you know what? I'm out. Here's my retirement packet. Right. Right. Or, you know what, this is so heinous, uh, I'm going uh, to file an IG complaint, and I we're going to put a tactical pause on what's going forward right now. Right. Um, that being said, it's not always so dramatic. Sometimes it's like, I think course of action one's it, course of action two yet. Like, if you're sitting and you're seeing your staff officers have some vigorous debate, you may have to make that decision in the end. Because you, you have time compression. There's only so often you can do mission de development, mission planning, MDMP, right? Mm -hmm. you, you can only do that for so long, and then you got to move forward. And what's so great is in the best units, they will have that vigorous debate. And like you say, all right, it's go time, guys. We've got to execute now. And everybody goes out and like, this is the best daggone plan, even if your plan didn't win. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You set yeah. that tone for the organization by not saying, well, I think this is a dumb plan. I right. guess we'll half-bake execute it. You can't do that and win. Right. Well, and it also brings up the idea of um, don't, don't let the, the perfect plan become the, uh, the ideal because that oftentimes is unachievable. And sometimes you can, you know, if you execute something quickly, you can get more done than if you wait until the time is, is perfect. Uh, it reminds me of a, a quote. I think it's attributed to Patton. And maybe it was just something that was said in Patton the movie. I don't know exactly. I'm not a Patton It just historian. becomes a big wash. <laughs> but, it's an awesome, but it's an awesome quote. And it goes something like, you know, a good plan violently executed today is better than a great plan next week. Yeah. And I think there's some truth to that. Um, so getting back to this idea of how you curate this healthy conversation and culture at work around these ideas of freedom of speech, good taste and manners should guide your conversation, right? Be a decent person when you are interacting with others, have everyone's dignity and respect in mind, uh, you know, address the ideas 
not the person. This goes back to that idea of the ad hominem attack, which is a character attack versus attacking in an idea. It's saying, you're, a, you're just saying that because you're a stupid person. I mean, or in other terms, right? Instead of actually addressing what they're talking about. Uh, and then your idea and what you talked about in terms of steel manning in an argument. Uh, so if someone has an idea, you know, attack the best form of that argument that they're making. Yeah, Don't... introducing just that terminology, steel man, mm-hmm. is helpful. So when somebody are having an argument, somebody's having an argument, and you observe that as a manager, executive, or even just somebody on the team, and you say, all right, Bill, tell me what you think Paul is really saying. Mm-hmm. Or Sandra, what Katie say? All right, Katie, did Sandra describe your idea accurately? Well, maybe 80%. This is the part that she kind of missed. All right. Now, Sandra, now tell us what you have. Now that you understand it fully, what what's going on here? Right. You know, right. and and that just that will help because it's about advancing the best idea rather than getting your butt hurt because you were wrong or somebody made you feel wrong. Right. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to this idea that I'm, I just remembered, uh, and I think it's appropriate here. Um, you know, this idea of of kind of how you structure arguments, and I'm reminded of um, how the Naval War College requires you to write certain papers. So I went through uh, what's called. Oh, joint... because our our college, you could apparently just plagiarize and still graduate. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> right. Yikes. You you heard about that, right? In the army, the oh. army workout. There's all these plagiarized papers, oh, no. and uh yeah, ah, I guess good. they're well, smarter in the Navy, maybe. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we have so there's a, a specific format that we had to write our papers when we were going through our joint military profe- professional military education, um, where you would state your, your thesis as the first sentence, say, this is what I'm arguing. And they make you take kind of take a, an a, opinion on a certain maybe it's a historical event or something. You'd make your opinion and you'd, you'd back it up. And then you had to have somewhere in, usually towards the end of the paper, you'd say, you'd have the, the counter argument. And you would say, you know, some may say, or some may argue, or some evidence suggests, and you, you, you try to steel man the other arguments and, and talk about it. And then, you, you know, you come back after that and you come back to your original thesis um, to describe your, your point of view. I think that's this idea here, that in good faith, you are examining other people's ideas. Having open-mindedness yourself can be a great way to approach this. Um, so don't make those ad hominem attacks, steel man your other arguments. And, you know, there's some great um, education that I think we all could do about some of these logical fallacies. And I think that that's a kind of a, a whole topic for another podcast episode. But let me give you an well. example of one. So there sure. there are there's webs whole websites that will make lists. And something I would do for some of the junior officers below me is I'd, ha- I'd have them print out a logical fallacy list. And then we just kind of drill them on those. But one of those is appeal to authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see a lot of people is like, as a doctor, as a, well, as a PhD professor, right. and uh, this is true. And, well, actually, just because you're a doctor or a PhD professor or a guitar guru or a yogi on a mountain in Tibet, right, doesn't make what you're saying is true. Just because the Dalai Lama says it and it looks really good on like a decorative meme doesn't mean it's true. Something is true because the preponderance of evidence makes it true. So if the Dalai Lama says, you know, one plus one equals two, and then you go sit down and validate it, you're like, well, one plus one equals two because it just does. Not because the Dalai Lama says it does, right? Right. Um, Tons of these logical fallacies that are out there that you'll see and what the power of this and if you have this as part of your education within your organization is that it helps people recommend uh recognize bad forms of argument and and stop them before they derail the whole conversation within your org well said so today we talked about can you say what you want and keep your job and the answer is 
kind of know, but within your organization, you should be trying to curate those healthy conversations. We talked about what the heck can anybody say anymore and how to be an effective social deviant within your organization if you're actually trying to change things and have that vigorous debate that leads to creativity and innovation. And we talked about how you as a leader and how you as a a person within an organization can help to curate that healthy conversation and culture that we all really need in our organizations. Right. And I think the key takeaway here is can you say what you want and keep your job? And the best organizations, if it's in good faith, honesty, and lacking logical fallacies, the answer should be yes. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.